This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the show, I'm Jake Cantor. It might be Easter, but we're still here to crack open a golden egg of telly chat. Coming up this week, BBC Studios gets a new boss, David Glover leaves Channel 4 and Rylan Clark lands his own chat show on Channel 5. Also on the programme, we hear from the producer of BBC Three's latest factual drama, Murdered by My Father. And finally, new BBC One entertainment show, Can't Touch This, and BBC Two's Bake Off, Creme de la Creme, get the preview treatment. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. In the studio this week, uh, ZigZag Chief Executive Danny Fenton and Broadcast Senior Reporter Hannah Ganajay-Stewart. Welcome both. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Feeling feisty. <laughs> good. This is good what we news. like to hear. Is uh, business brisk? Business is good. It, it's an interesting time in TV because I think last year was a, uh, a game of two halves. So the first six months generally were quite slow in the industry. And then the second six months were as good as I can remember. And obviously with the time lag in TV, that's meant that this year started really well. So you've got stuff coming up on screen soon or what can yeah. we expect? We're... Um, We've got 40 hours in production at the moment um, across about four or five different broadcasters and probably the thing that will come to air first will be the Arnold Schwarzenegger um, yes. Cunning Stunts, as it was originally called. <laughs> now, now called Arnie's Greatest Stunts. <laughs> Just too much room for error there. Uh, yes. <laughs> Basically. Okay, well, I'm glad you're in feisty mood because uh, we've got some some big topics to get stuck into. Let's start with Mark Lindsay, shall we? Succeeding Peter Salmon as the director of BBC Studios this week. Uh, Lindsay has already crossed the divide and will be tasked with drawing on his experience at indies like Tiger Aspect as he attempts to commercialise in-house production. The move has led to inevitable speculation about the future of the director of television role. Uh, Lindsay has been acting up for Danny Cohen since October and it is now widely expected that the position will be scrapped in favour of a director of content, a sort of commissioning overlord who will oversee TV, radio and online. Uh, not a massive surprise, was it, Hannah? Not really, no. I think we all knew that was coming, didn't we? Never uh, a dull day, though, at BBC Studios, always someone else arriving and someone else going. So, I mean, the, the Peter Salmon stuff, that was the shock, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that departure was the one that got everyone thinking, I think, uh, who was going to replace him. Probably Mark's name was on sort of everyone's lips at that point anyway, so... Yes, we we'll see how it how it works out and kind of what he's got to bring. Do you do you think he's got too much of a challenge? Yeah, I think he's facing a bit of a challenge to be honest. That phase 1 is pretty much complete now. They're going to be separating studios from sort of the rest of the BBC TV towards the end of April. So, um which that, is a slight delay. Slight delay. I think originally it was the 1st of April that was supposed to happen. It's now I think the 29th, so it's been pushed back a little bit. I'm not sure what the technicalities that have delayed that are to be honest because they are suggesting that there's going to be very little change actually from removing it from TV and you know it's business as usual and the idea is to create this kind of culturally separate entity which will allow them to be more creative in the way that they produce their content again we'll rem- it remains to be seen whether or not that difference will be evident in the ne- in the year before commercializing yeah um, and that little entity will alter- i say little it's 400, it's a big entity. 400 million pound <laughs> yeah. behemoth but um that will ultimately be the division that becomes bbc studios yeah danny you've got strong views have you on the, on on all of this not particularly on, not on, on mark on, not on mark i no. mean mark's a good guy and i think he's the logical choice to do that you know he's 
been at the BBC a while, having been the acting uh, director of television. I can't think of anybody better, really, to step into Peter's shoes. As you say, Peter's departure was the kind of bolt from the blue. I mean, from what I remember, that role of director of television was only really created for Danny Cohen, so it didn't didn't pre-exist him, from what I can remember. George Entwistle was director of Vision. Okay. That was when television was called Vision, and right. they scrapped that. Okay. Um, so, similar, so, similar-ish. Very similar. But yeah, I, w- I would expect there wouldn't be a replacement for that role. And yeah, I mean, it's a very, very tough job, but pro- I think Mark's probably the best person to do that. And what do you make of the the sort of the, the wider restructure that's potentially on the cards in terms of having someone maybe overseeing all three of those massive areas, radio, TV and online? Oh, it seems to me a lot of what's happening is driven by cost cutting. So, you know, there are decisions that are being made that may streamline the BBC in terms of effectiveness, but primarily are driven by saving money. Well, they need to. £800 million. That's gone up by £100 million in the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, it appears to be creeping up kind of every two or three months, basically, these targets. Um, We've seen another senior appointment this week, which was a bit of a a a surprise in terms of um, Fiona Campbell kind of moving into um, online and mobile and digital, which creates this sort of other... Other role that other senior role there at BBC News in, ba- yeah. in BBC News, which needs to save eighty million. Which itself. yeah, which was one of the ones that had the kind of steepest hike in the so, last announcement. So typically BBC News, isn't it? You know, we need to save eighty million pounds, but we'll create we'll another just, management role. We'll just have someone in charge of online <laughs> stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, things like that are gonna. I, I mean, I wonder if that is going to be reflected in Tony Hall's restructure announcements uh, next month, to be honest, because I imagine that digital role is going to be something that we see a bit more of. So it may well be that that's a slight indication of direction yeah, of travel. I think that's that, probably right. Or at least digital elements bolted onto yeah. existing roles people like giving, I mean, in some respects, giving people um, that, re- that specific remit um, isn't completely um, nonsensical. I mean, that's obviously a growing area and something they need to get their heads around. You wonder whether or not it ought to be someone who's native to that from outside um that would also seem to make some sense but bringing people in from outside doesn't seem to be um an easy thing to do at the bbc at the moment some agreement there danny hannah's right i mean the bbc does struggle to bring in people these days and that's that's a symptom of cost cutting because they can't offer the salaries that the commercial sector offers that that can that can and might be a problem for the bbc uh going forward yeah very probably and you know one also wonders whether um, Peter Sam's departure was partly because of the commercial attraction of being outside the BBC, but also partly, you know, who really wants to be the person to oversee massive cuts and probably um, redundancies? Yes. Fun times ahead. Okay. Uh, next up, Gogglebox Commissioner David Glover is stepping down as Channel 4's head of Specialist Factual to start up an indie with Dragonfly boss Mark Raphael. Uh, as well as Studio Lambert's monster hit, Glover's legacy includes The Secret Life of Four-Year-Olds, Speed with Guy Martin and Grayson Perry, Who Are You? Danny, do you think David's a bit of a loss? He'll be a lost Channel 4, absolutely. I mean, he's had some great hits there. 11 years he's been there. I mean, you know, some people do less for murder. Um, I think that uh, it's, you know, not surprising that he wants to, you know, move into the independent sector. Over 100 companies have been set up in the last two years. So, you know, it's a competitive marketplace. And a lot of commissioning editors I speak to are quite shocked when they turn um, poacher rather than gamekeeper and how tough they struggle it can be. Well, I think so, because, you know, when they 
find that people don't return their calls as quickly as they did when they were a commissioner, it, it can be tough. But those two guys are very solid. You know, they've got a good good background. I would be um, not at all surprised if the Channel 4 Growth Fund decided to invest in them. It would make a lot of sense. Although they don't have any celebrities uh, on the board of the company. So <laughs> well, that do I be... sense strong views on the Channel 4 Growth Fund, Danny? <laughs> No, I think it's uh, it's well, great for all those companies who've got investments. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I thought Laura, Laura Francis spoke at our Indie Summit last week and um, was quite uh, nakedly honest about the fact that Channel 4 is looking to invest in bigger companies now, mm. which is slightly counter to what they originally set out when they started this whole initiative, which yeah. was to give money to young and aspiring companies looking well, to make their way. Well, and Sacha Baron Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they ended up with Channel 4 either. Uh, I guess it certainly won't be Endemol Shine, given that uh, uh, Mark is clearly uh, flying that nest. Yeah. As with many others at the moment. I think the issue with investing in bigger companies is that the current parameters for their investment, based on how much money they've got left, the level of stake they're prepared to put in and take out, you know, an investment in a bigger company would be a flea on an elephant's buttock. So it's it's more appealing to them to invest in startups and smaller companies. Yeah. I would have thought. And David's record, Hannah, pretty good. Pretty good. You're a yeah. Gogglebox fan. W- w- massive Gogglebox fan, of course. Who isn't? You know, it's great. Um, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether or not he can recreate um, hits like that on the other side. I think, as you say, it's it's one thing to spot them, isn't it, when they're coming in your direction, but to try and replicate that kind of success from the other side is possibly difficult, and particularly if you've been out of the game for as long as he has. But he's he sounded very pragmatic, didn't he? He said, I was only meant to be there for a year. So um, he's yeah, obviously he been raring. Crossing enemy lines. Yeah, he said. exactly. Uh-huh. So he's obviously been raring to um, sort of approach things from a different angle. So maybe that will be the drive that that he needs. Yeah. So while we're just thinking about Gogglebox, um thought I might I thought you might quite like to quickly hear Stephen Lambert's views on uh, Channel 4 privatization. Uh, here he is talking at Broadcast Indie Summit last week. The impact of of, of changing the arrangement for Channel 4 could be disastrous. Uh, I think that Channel 4 does an extraordinary job at taking risk on commissioning programs that may not otherwise be commissioned in this market. And I think that the way in which this market has developed, where you have such interestingly different buying units, the BBC, the way it operates, ITV with its need to still have to commission 25% from independents, the Channel 4 model, which is all about taking risk, but at the same time taking risk within the, with, with a commercial hat on. I mean, it, it needs shows that are going to be popular, but it doesn't need to just stick with ideas that are doing well. I mean, you know, I remember when Kevin Liger said to us, well, we're not going to carry on with WifeSwap because we feel we need to start doing new things all the time. And yet WifeSwap was at that time still getting, them, I don't know, three million viewers. I mean, a big number these days. The, the decision to stop Big Brother, clearly Big Brother hadn't run out of steam. It's doing very nicely on Channel 5. I mean, this is a completely weird notion for a commercial broadcaster to, to end shows that are still doing well. And I think that's all driven by Channel 4's desire to, to meet its fuzzy remit uh, and to be distinctive. And I think it meets that, that remit very well. And I don't recognise what uh, Whittingdale is saying when he talks about it having about a fuzzy, fuzzy remit. remit. Would, would shows like Gogglebox have been commissioned anywhere else? 
In retrospect, obviously it would be because you'd say, well, that's a hit show. Yeah, I'm sure ITV would be quite happy with Gogglebox right now. Exactly. <laughs> but would, they, would, would anybody have taken the risk other than Channel 4 in the first place? I doubt it. This seems to be dominating the agenda on Talking TV at the moment, but uh, it'd be interesting to hear your views. Do you, do you agree with some of what Stephen's saying? It's a bit like the Brexit of uh, TV, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. Um, Are you in or out? <laughs> I'm in between. Uh, I think that, look, I understand why Stephen Lambert is saying what he's saying, and there's a number of people saying what he's saying. I think there's an element of it being self-serving that obviously you're going to support the hand that feeds you. You know, as a as a packed board member, I can tell you that there are a lot of indies who are undecided. And I don't think the campaign has been fully investigated from both sides. And PAC's official position is that it's cautiously against full privatisation, but really wants Channel 4 to um, restate what its mission statement is going forwards. Do you agree with the fuzzy, fuzzy definitions that uh, Whittingdale mentioned about Channel 4 then, that it's not as defined as it should be? I wouldn't call them fuzzy, but I think that uh, if PACT, as the Independent Producer Association, is going to support Channel 4, then it needs greater clarity on what Channel 4's remit is going forward. How much of this is coloured by Channel 4's stance on terms of trade? I don't think the two things are... <laughs> They're mutually exclusive. I don't think the two things are connected. It's, it, it, there's, not a, there's not a tit for tat. I think, it, you know, in truth, at the moment... All we're hearing is the point of view of producers who are supporting Channel 4 against privatisation. And I'm not saying that I want Channel 4 privatised, far from it. But I think to have a proper debate, we need to know what are the pluses and minuses of privatisation. Interesting. Okay. well, I'm sure it will rumble on. Uh, For now, though, a couple of commissions to get stuck into. First up, Rylan Clark lands his own Channel 5 show, uh, produced by Endemol Shine Group Indie Initial. A bit of a chat show for Rylan. What do we think of this? I think it'll probably be all right. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to like him, he's, I guess, yeah, haven't you? He's, yeah, you know, he's a pretty colourful character, isn't he? He kind of... I, d- I don't mind Ryland, actually. I think he could, I think it'll be he's good. Pretty, he's pretty good on Big Mouth, isn't yeah, he? Is that what yeah. they call it these days? Am I... Am I just... Am I, I living... I've, am I, I, am I talking about five shows that's side. like ten years old? A bit on the side, that's yeah. it. <laughs> I, I think it's really positive that Channel 5 is trying to grow talent um, because, you know, that's not been the thing that... It's happened a lot on Channel 5. And the fact that it's going to do a, a chat show is also really positive. It's moving more into entertainment, crossing that divide between what MTV does and what Channel 5 has done in the past. So I think it's, it's, it's really positive and he's a good character and I'm sure it'll be a fun watch. And they've had reasonable success with uh, Lip Sync Battle, haven't they? So that, I mean, that has probably given them some confidence to go ahead and commission this. I would say beyond reasonable. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, the ratings have been good. The, the, the coverage... The press coverage has been good. And, you know, when you've got something like Big Brother and you've got something like Lip Sync Battle, you know, you, you need that hammock in between and they need to find some other entertaining shows to sit, sit with it. And, you know, Ryland Chat Show seems perfect fit. Seems pretty upbeat at the moment, doesn't it, Channel 5 under Ben Frow? Yeah, I, um, I went to a, a breakfast he hosted at the Tate Modern and I have to say that you know, the message from Five was, you know, pretty robust and that they've got big, big ambitions. Okay, back to Channel 4 quickly. The jump coming back. Yeah, despite... L- looks like that that's going to be the case. Yeah, yeah. The, the most dangerous show on television. It, you're quite rightly lives up to its name, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it was a bit hair-raising this time around, wasn't it? Um, they're going to have to get some very robust celebrities who's left to break. Well, this is the thing. Jay Hunt said that they won't have any problem casting it, which I sort I, I sort of believe but don't believe yeah. as well. I thought that, you know, the phrase um, that Channel 4 was minded to bring back the jump was quite interesting. And, and, and as you say, the big question is, are there any celebrities who are minded to be on the jump? <laughs> uh, and what quality of celebrities they'll be? But, you know, thus far, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many celebrities they've managed to appear on the show of repute. But clearly the last series and the level of injuries um, is going to put some people off. Yeah, and it does reasonable business for them. Two million viewers. Two million plus. Uh, family show, yeah. as Jay Hunt says. But uh, one person I was speaking to this week in the industry was saying that it feels like they're all on a jolly and <laughs> you're not part of it, which they find a little off-putting. Yeah. Um, and having having gone out to Austria this year... You had a jolly. I, I had a jolly. <laughs> and it, they were very cliquey, the celebrities. Yeah. Um, you could see there was a genuine um, affection between them. Yeah. But whether that translates into it being a warm and welcoming show, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. they talked about it quite openly. I remember, I think the first show, there was chat kind of uh, between jumps of what they'd been getting up to in the corridors of the hotel. And there was were, a bit more of that this year, Yeah, they were it? quite sort of open about that. So I suppose if you can get some of that kind of chat out of it and bring the audience in on some of the naughty antics behind scenes, then it sort of works, doesn't it? Naughty antics Naughty for you. antics, yeah. yeah. All right. More <laughs> of them, more of them. <laughs> Those are your headlines for this week. Thanks to Danny and Hannah. Moving on, two years ago, BBC Three's Murdered by My Boyfriend told the chilling story of a domestic violence case. The factual drama was a big hit, raising awareness for an important issue and garnering its star, Georgina Campbell, a BAFTA. BBC Three has now sought inspiration from other real-life events for a second drama. Murdered by My Father will tackle the issue of honour killings, bringing viewers the story of a 17-year-old British Asian girl whose life is ended by her dad. Executive producer Aisha Raphael will be with us in a moment to discuss the show. But first, a clip. Here, Salma is having breakfast with her brother when her father reads a letter from school. Where were you last Friday? School. Wednesday. Why are you asking? We are concerned that Salma's lack of attendance is a product of distraction elsewhere in her life. Have you been? But I know. That it's a boy. <gasps> you don't say things like that. Okay. Welcome, Aisha. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for coming in. Yes, thank so you're you for all inviting cut, me. Cut and delivered? Yes, and it's uh, going to be available online on Tuesday. The Next week. Yes, yes. And um, if you don't mind me saying it's it's pretty harrowing stuff. It's not an easy watch. It's one of those subjects which I grew up myself in a uh, British Pakistani uh, household. It's it's one of those subjects that's been around and with me um, for years. And so harrowing as it is and difficult as it is to translate into something that's watchable for telly, we really, really felt it was important to tell that story and... Although it's harrowing, I think there's lots of things for people that are relatable within it. It's a love story. It's about a young girl, teenager, wanting to have the freedoms that most teenagers want to have, meeting someone, falling in love with them and facing difficulties 
progressing that relationship because actually she, her father has already uh, made a commitment to another boy. And then the sort of terrible consequences of desire for, for a girl in that situation and, and obviously it leads to her death. So I take on board that it's harrowing, but actually I think uh, there's, there's also a love story there, in there. There, there, are, <laughs> there are genuine moments of levity in it, I, I, sh- I should add. And, it, you know, it's, um, enjoyable is not the right word, but, you know, it certainly grips you. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've been uh, in, in some of the promotional material around it, you've been quite careful to say that it's based on lots of different accounts. Yeah. Um, talk us through that process because Murdered by My Boyfriend was slightly different, wasn't it? Yes, because what we did and, and all factual drama sort of starts with true people uh, who've experienced stuff, whether that's fre- uh, friends of girls that ended up murdered by family members or boyfriends that we got in touch with. Um, and the, the, the thing that came through with all, with all of them was the importance of protecting their identities and even by sort of jigsaw identification, somehow people finding out who, who it was that they were talking about. So when we um, got Vinay Patel, our writer, on board, what we said to him was read around the subject as much as you can. And there have been some very high profile cases that have been in the tabloids and broadsheets and on the news that everyone's aware of. And take. Uh, we also talked to psychologists, to the police, to um, charities such as Karma Nirvana and ICRO, a Kurdish and Iranian women's organisation, to get um, the, for, for it to be as grounded in truth as it could possibly be. But at the same time, we didn't want any repercussions of us telling one particular story to then have further negative impact um, because it would defeat the point of... D- doing doing our film so a real journalistic exercise then really yeah. and how so how did you piece together those stories and do it carefully and as, as to not identify one particular case uh i think for people aware of some of the more famous stories they'll probably see echoes in several of of the stories that they might think of which we thought would be a good thing and um, it's not about one particular community which we're quite keen to say because actually it happens in loads of different communities it's not one particular uh, family structure either so we wanted to, to we wanted the writer to have freedom and to be inspired by truth and to be grounded in truth but not for anyone to be able to say that was my daughter or that was my boyfriend or that was my my sister. Yeah. And Vinay's pretty new writer, isn't he? He is, yeah. It's really exciting. Uh, one of the things that BBC Three has traditionally been incredibly good at is nurturing new talent. And when we embarked on this, obviously I come from a Pakistani uh, Muslim background, I was really keen to try and get a voice that would be from a community that had also, like myself, grown up with it and was aware of all of the difficulties of representation because it's so open to people saying, uh, and I have myself felt when I've watched other versions of this this type of subject before, oh my God, that's quite caricatured or uh, oh, the... Um, father there is just a monster and so when I read Vinay's theatre script he'd done True Brits I was just blown away it was a very distinct and original voice and he'd done one uh, thing with BBC drama which was an iPlayer short and so he hadn't done a long film before I met him and I just liked the sensibility he shared the same concerns I had about the representation and we both wanted to do a um, a story where the father what we wanted to do was attempt to get as much as we could into the head of the father as possible. It's not to be on his side, but to understand how a father can do that to their daughter. You need not to represent them as a monster, but to try and understand 
all of the pressures that are coming and bearing upon him to do something as drastic um, as he does. And I, I feel really pleased that that's one of the things that I feel we've achieved in the casting of um, Adil Akhtar, who I think is an amazing talent. Um, he's incredible in this. He's, well. he's really good. Um, just looking at Adil, you can't think the word monster. And I think that really helps in the portrayal. But also he, he really gets us into... Um, where the father's at, the father really loves his daughter, the daughter really loves her dad. And that was really important for us to convey that actually this sort of extreme horror and violence can happen in the most loving of setups. Yeah. And the thing I find fascinating is the, the spoilers in the headline, <laughs> in, in the title of the show. How, I can't tell you. How, how do you manage that? Uh, the, the battles with creative people, directors and writers, when you're faced with a, a title like Murder by My Father. So um, I think originally that came from, we were, we were in a conversation with Damien a lot about what, what we could do in terms of actual drama that might capitalise on the fact that Murder by My Boyfriend was an amazing film and brought something that's very prevalent in society to a young audience that really engaged with it and watched it. And we wanted, and he said, well, actually, you know, there was a tussle there about the title originally as well. And um, even though people might not want us to have that title because it gives too much away, obviously it gives everything away, um, it brings a certain, it's another storytelling technique that's really powerful all the way as you watch it, you're sort of filled with dread and anticipation about what's going to happen next. So Completely. it sort of works it's both ways. It's almost overwhelming that dread at times, even though you know what's going to happen. Yeah. which is quite a strange sensation as a viewer, yeah. I think. Yeah. So how did you come to be involved in something that I guess is perceived in, in all intents and purposes to be a sequel? Damien was, uh, Damien Kavanagh, the controller of BBC Three, uh, knew that I had a drama background. We're always pitching factual drama ideas to him. And um, he was looking for another way to do something that was a big social issue that young people would be interested in. Honour killing is something that affects young women in the largest numbers of people impacted are uh, young women under 25. And uh, much as with domestic violence, which although happens in um, all age groups, it's actually very particularly something that happens a lot with, with young people. We wanted to find a way to tell a story that had universal aspects and so could be about something that everybody related to. Everyone comes in a family, everyone has a father, everyone is a t has been a teenager, everyone falls in love. So f to find common strands that people could relate to but tell um, a really powerful story that would also have impact beyond our programme, which is what Murder by My Boyfriend did as well. And just more generally in your day-to-day -day work, are you trying to find stories that can be translated into drama more these yeah. days yes well if you look at most stuff um on the telly it's hard to say what doesn't come out of a sort of fact-based you know fact-based research really whether it's you know the uh lost honor of christopher jeffries whether it's uh you know murder by my boyfriend a lot of the stuff that um, has impact uh, cyberbully that was on Channel 4. A lot of the impacting stuff actually comes from a real world place. Um, some of those stories are, as Murder by My Boyfriend was, an individual narrative. Um, others are inspired by or have collated, as we have, different stories and then use them to influence the, the, story, the, t the story that we tell. I think that people are just really wanting 
authenticity and something that's real. Um, as much as we like the fantastical, I think that there actually is on telly a definite trend for that. So yes, we make it our business to constantly be pitching fact-based drama. How do you weigh that up though? Because <laughs> sometimes I'd imagine that you stumble across subjects or individuals that you think actually that'd be a great documentary. <laughs> Often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do you how do you make that decision as to whether to pursue something that could become a scripted project ultimately? I think I think the ultimate justification for something being factual drama is that you could not have told it in any other way. If you look at hybrids like the recent murder games that Cat English directed on BBC3, it's a perfect example of where you can marry the two forms and uh, that was amazing access to the family um, of Breck and also there was an element that you absolutely couldn't but that was very dramatic that you'd want to be involved with which was the actual dialogue between the two boys um, which she had to dramatise. So there's those sorts of hybrids but the rule of thumb for us and I'm sure for anybody in commissioning when we take an idea to them is could you tell that better in truth and observationally or with the real people or with other examples of these people you've come across or is there no other way to tell it and I think um, with this one there was no other way to tell this story other than to dramatise because I don't think we'd ever get uh, unfolding actuality Why you, you couldn't ever be part of it you could only ever be part of the aftermath which is um, powerful but not as powerful Yeah and you tell it in about an hour and 15 minutes? It's which 75 is, minutes. It's unusual for television. <laughs> uh, is that is that because you're freed from the constraints of the, uh, of the schedule? Yes, it didn't start out. Uh, uh, I do promise everybody it didn't start out that we wanted a longer film. But um, <laughs> we, uh, Vinay wrote a 60-minute script. We were scheduled to be making a 60-minute script. And then somehow in the, the way that Bruce Goodison, who directed it, somehow in the way that the actors embodied the parts, I, somehow the mood and length and pace and tone of the scenes just felt right for us to be making it longer. And I, I got uh, Damien on the phone and said, I'm really sorry, Damien, it's just not going to be 60 minutes. And he said, you know what, this is the one time I can say it doesn't matter. And, uh, is because quite liberating? It's fantastic, yeah. It, because also, a lot of the time, sometimes, uh, you're stretching material to be the length that needs to fit 60. And actually, a lot of documentaries, for instance, work better at 40 or 45 minutes or 50. And, uh, you know, a Channel 4 hour is only 47 minutes at the BBC. Uh, an hour is actually 59 minutes of content. So it is, it's liberating in that you, you don't need it to be... As long as it's sort of beyond 20, it counts as long form. It doesn't really matter. Uh, how will it work on the, the repeat? Are you getting BBC One or BBC Two? It's going to go out at 10.45 on BBC One a week after the BBC Three transmission. I think BBC One is the right home for it. In fact, the 75 minutes makes it harder to put out on BBC Two at nine uh, because of the way that they've, they, they schedule. But actually, I think in terms of audience and uh, subject matter, um, a lot of the stuff that we've done on BBC Three has then translated to BBC One really well, like Life and death row um and i think this subject feels it, it it will chime with a larger audience and just just quickly uh, some some thoughts on this might might be interesting in terms of you know obviously the the conversation in the industry being dominated by boosting diversity at the moment do you think dramas like this should be more commonplace 
Yes, although not always dramas like this. Uh, we're really proud to have brought this subject to an audience, but actually I'd love to see drama where it wasn't about an issue. I'd love to see more drama. I loved seeing, for instance, in Dr. Foster, it was great that there was, um, you know, the the doctor in the surgery that was the friend of the lead character, just happened to be Asian. I, uh, I also really looking forward to seeing Undercover, where the leads are black. Drama is a really brilliant way to show the nation uh, a mirror, hold a mirror up to them that reflects them. And in some ways, actually, it's slightly easier than doing it through factual. Um, sometimes with factual, you're very honed in on the place that you end up. And that story doesn't necessarily mean you can bring diverse elements in. Whereas most people lives lives, uh, uh, most British people lives, live lives in this country where they are surrounded on a daily basis by a, a wide variety of human beings of all races, colours, creeds and, and so on. So uh, drama is a better way to reflect it. Yeah, and finally, you got some other ideas up your sleeve? Are we going <laughs> to be expecting another follow-up? <laughs> uh, not necessarily a direct follow-up, but yes, we, we've got a few ideas that we're talking to Damien about in factual drama, but also for BBC Two. Um, we're working with Cat English at the moment who did Murder Games, so we're hoping to... Um, we've just got, actually, um, access uh, to somebody who's willing to, t- to allow it to be a story about their actual life, so it might be quite exciting to do something where you can identify the person whose story uh, we're telling. And I'm doing something with um, Fergus O'Brien, who was an exec working with me in docs and is now returning to the thing he most loves, which is directing, which is um, 50 years uh, next year will be the um, anniversary of the 1967 Sexual Offences Act. And we're going to do um, tell the story of the decriminalisation of... Um, homosexuality and the liberation and that sort of hope hope of liberation at that point through a mixture of drama and documentary okay uh, well look we wish you all the best with that and uh, murdered by my father which will launch on bbc3 on the 29th of march On to some previews now. Back with me are Danny Fenton and Hannah Ganeje-Stewart, and we will start with Bake Off Creme de la Creme. Uh, Love Productions' spin-off show for BBC Two is presented by Michelin star chef Tom Kerridge and is effectively Bake Off the Professionals. Here, Tom walks us through the teams. Then, as soon as that's done, jump straight on the yoghurt mousse, right? We're all making certain elements. I've got Ben working on the pistachio sponge for the Foranvazio. Cooking needs to be nice and chilled, relaxed. It's going to come out in our food as well, hopefully. At just 27, Reese is one of the youngest head pastry chefs in the world. I'm always conscious of it when I meet other pastry chefs. Service, please, Lucas. Because it is quite a young age. But honestly, I don't care. From his kitchen in the five-star Grove Hotel in Hertfordshire, he's put together a team of young guns, 25-year-old Ben and 21-year-old Lauren. They're the youngest team in this year's creme de la creme. Competition destroy your friendship. We'll find out. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) there might be... uh... This could be the last time we... Uh... <laughs> yeah, there might be a few tantrums, a couple of uh, beaver antics going on. He's great, isn't he? That that head chef for that young, the young team. young guy, yeah. yeah. He's really liked instantly likeable, but also quite easy to loathe, I should imagine. Probably if you're working for him, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was good to watch, though. He was very, he was watchable. Yeah. Um, clearly he had his team... Under control, uh, didn't he? Completely under control. Yeah. Um, what did you make of it, Danny? I found it hard to engage with, but then that's possibly because I'm the only guy in the world who's never watched Bake Off. No. Yeah. So I wouldn't really know a creme de la creme from a standard full fat. Um, (laughs) I'm assuming that this is kind of the professional's version of Bake Off in the way that 
MasterChef Professionals is the professionals version of MasterChef. I mean, I, I did find it... Basically, if you take Bake Off, strip out all the warmth, yes. make it slightly more American... That's merge what you've got here. Yeah, merge it with MasterChef. <laughs> I think you've basically yeah. got the show. Yeah. I mean, it, it left me feeling slightly cold, a bit yeah. like a baked Alaska. <laughs> um, I I can see that obviously it's the best of the best. Um, if you are into uh, Bake Off, then I'm sure you're going to love it. Um, I mean, my other thought really was with all the different spin-offs of Bake Off, what we junior Bake Off uh, uh, what's the other one? A slice of, relief. Uh, an extra slice. Yeah. I was wondering whether the the BBC Three uh, channel space could be used as the the British Bake Off channel. channel yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Love Productions would find that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'd love that. Very yeah. up for yeah. that. No, I have to agree. Actually, I think it might be. I'm I'm getting a bit bake overkill. Off I'm bake off now. Now I wasn't ever a massive cookery format fiend. Anyway, love the Bake Off, but I think you know. Enough's enough, and I love Tom Carriage as well. So it's a bit of a shame, but I felt a bit. The he's same good. Way. He's quite warm, yeah. isn't he? And yeah, he is. He's hard not to like, and but I found it quite hard at, in the sort of first first fifteen twenty minutes to distinguish between the teams because mm. they're all wearing the same mm. coloured outfit. I don't, Making I, the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't quite. I don't know why they didn't put them in different coloured, colours. Yeah, uh, coloured aprons. Mm. Um, so I found that quite hard going at first. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I thought was good was the team element, actually, because you don't really see that in cooking shows. No. It's, it's they're Usually chefs are quite lone wolves, aren't they? So yeah. that was quite nice to get a bit of team dynamic. Well, especially with professionals, I suppose. They're not used to um, having to jostle against each other. It's so. clearly a slightly different world, isn't it? The yeah. patisserie element of baking. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a there was a certain level of tension, I would say, slightly yeah. <laughs> slightly more than when you're making a scone. What did you make of the judges? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, it felt like you needed more faces for me. I mean, Tom was there. He wasn't that involved. I sort of felt like he was a bit distanced from everything. So you didn't have that kind of interaction like you do on the Bake Off. And yeah, the judges, you know, obviously they know their stuff, but we don't know who they are. That was a bit at arm's length as well, yeah. in a way. Okay. I do wonder like, how, how well it will rate, because obviously Bake Off is a juggernaut. To me, not having watched Bake Off, uh, this felt quite elitist in a way and, and, and quite specialist. So... How many of the kind of regular Bake Off fans will, will come to it will be interesting. Well, they might come to it for the music, which is the same, yeah. uh, which I was quite surprised at. But anyway, Bake Off Creme de la Creme begins on the 29th of March at 8pm on BBC Two. Finally, is this BBC One's next big entertainment format? Northern Irish indie Stellify certainly hopes so, as the channel prepares to launch Can't Touch This. Uh, the physical game show is presented by Zoe Ball and Ashley Banjo, with Sue Perkins providing witty voiceover. It has a simple premise too. Touch the prize, win the prize. And in this clip, fearless Amy starts the assault course by being launched from a catapult. Fire! That's the robotic vacuum cleaner banked. It was no trip to Barcelona, but Stackham High is looking good. Clearly, Amy has no fear of heights either. And she's banked the 3D printer, so technically she could print her own car and just go home now. Uh, so let's not do any spoilers for the big finale, which is obviously the they get a real car and the person has to try and touch it, whoever... whoever... Or they don't. Or they don't, <laughs> yeah. One or the other. <laughs> touch the prize, win the prize. Uh, 
Hannah, do you want to kick us off? <laughs> I thought it was Funhouse for grown ups. Like the first thing, I, <laughs> the first thing I thought when I watched it was like, "Hang on a minute, I've seen this." Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> Pat Sharp was hosting it last night. Um, I actually really liked it. I'm not a total wipeout fan or anything like that. It's not something I'd watch massively, but um, and I wasn't expecting perhaps to be personally that into it. But I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was very funny. Sue Perkins, Sue Perkins obviously, is, is mm. just yeah, brilliant. And it was lively and it was fun, wasn't it? I just I thought it was really good. It's hard not to smile at someone, yeah. I think. Did you think it hanged together? I thought it was A for effort. And I thought the, you know, it had a grand set and, and grand ambitions, but I couldn't help feeling it was kind of the illegitimate love child of Wipeout, um, Gladiators, and Ninja Warrior. You know, kind of messy menage a trois. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a hell of a threesome. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it it was actually very compelling and I thought it was really cleverly put together. A bit like Wipeout, um, the first round was really, really long and then the rest kind of it's was fast show. forward. Yeah, and so I, I, that, to me, slightly unbalanced it. There's so many contestants as well that it's hard to kind of get any um, compassion or, or uh, recognition with those people. You know, it's very difficult for BBC One primetime because they've tried a number of things there, like Price to Part, Getaway Car, Don't Scare the Hair. And that, that classic. That classic. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully sooner or later one of these uh, satellite entertainment shows will stick. And maybe, you know, this is the one. I think under the current scrutiny that BBC is under, a show that's kind of giving away 3D printers and vacuum cleaners. Um, doesn't strike the right note. Doesn't right? necessarily strike a public service remit. But I, I do hope, for Sellify's sake, this is the one. Well, it's nice to say, well, I mean, I know they're owned by Sony, but uh, they are a young company in Northern Ireland, and I think that should be celebrated to a certain extent. The, the thing that got me is the lack of studio audience. So it felt like it yeah. lost a bit of warmth. It was a bit echoey yeah. Yeah. when they kind of went back Wait, to Zoe funny, Ball. I didn't, and I, didn't, that. I didn't really notice that. I mean, the two best things about it were Sue Perkins' voiceover and the soundtrack. I was going to say the soundtrack as well. Which I thought was, well. was really, really fun. It was good. And those two things kind of lifted it for me. But I think there was definitely, I felt that there was just this kind of echoey moment. Well, when, when you they could were... hear them bashing into things, yeah. you could hear it racketing around yeah. this sort of cavernous space. Mm. Yeah. That did make me think, oh. I felt like that was, th- that almost to me said this is the first episode of a big new show. And I feel like there's sort of, there are a few format points that evidently could be tightened up. And But I think it, you know, it had potential I quite liked, in that, um, in, for that. I quite like the hosts. It was an interesting new yeah, yeah. combo or old and new combo. And I quite like the way they were interacting with the contestants. So different, obviously, to Wipeout, where Richard Hammond was in the green screen in London while it was being filmed in Argentina. I like the fact that they could actually comment on the action as it was happening. It was interesting because um, one of the bosses of Stellify uh, spoke at our Indie Summit last week and he talked about the pitch process for Can't Touch This. And they, as part of their, their sting, they cut together Ashley Banjo appearing on uh, Strictly Come Dancing Take Two. And uh, so they had it, the interaction between him and Zoe Ball and they laid on Sue Perkins' voiceover from Bake Off. So they sort of pulled it's it all clever. together to show how the mood the, of it, yeah, yeah, how it would it's work. really good. Uh, but that was an interesting uh, insight into how it was pitched. Um, Can't Touch This swings into action on Saturday the 26th of March at 6.10pm. Uh, so, the end is in touching distance. Before we depart, thanks to my guests Aisha Raphael, Danny Fenton and Hannah Ganeje-Stewart. I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Thanks for listening and have a cracking Easter. 
You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.